Joseph, thank you so very much for sharing what God is doing through Integrity Life to you and to your teammates. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the integrity of your life that has been a beautiful witness on college campuses across this land and in Slovakia and for being faithful to the Lord and allowing us to see a glimpse of the fruit that he is doing through your work and through the lives of the people connected. Church, I want to encourage you to be faithful in praying for Integrity Life and for this wonderful ministry and um, its opportunity to influence this nation, especially amongst the university students. So let us make sure we're doing our part in lifting them up and encouraging them in supporting them and praying for them as they serve on the front lines of sharing the gospel and discipling men and women, that they may grow in their understanding of their life in Christ. Well, today we're going to begin a new series called Backstory, and it's a series on the parables of Jesus. Uh, A backstory is a literary device that is used to reveal the depth and understanding of the main point or the main story. You see this a lot in in movies, especially when you have a series of movies like Star Wars. They'll go back and give you more of the backstory, more of the details of what happens behind it in order to drive home the main message. Jesus is a master at doing this, and he uses parables, he uses stories to teach an incredibly important truths. He does so because we remember the stories oftentimes better than we remember the sermons. The stories stick with us. But one of the dangers of the stories is they can become so familiar that we can still miss the point. And in the stories we're going to examine today, that is often the case. Oftentimes when we look at at the the story we call the parable of the prodigal son, we miss Jesus' main point, in part because, at least in English, by calling it the parable of the prodigal son, we've already missed the main point. It is not so much a story about the one who is lost as it is a story about the one who is seeking them. You see, Jesus, in all of his work and ministry, came to do two things. Number one, to seek and to save the lost. That he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. But he also came to show us the Father full of grace and truth. To give us a right understanding of who God is. And Jesus works that particular purpose time and time through parable after parable in his teachings. Here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives us three interconnected stories, all of which have the same point and ultimately reveal one specific lesson. Something is lost, and what is lost cannot save itself. The sheep is lost and can't rescue itself. The coin is lost and can't do anything about it. Something is lost, but also... Someone goes to great effort and sacrifice to rescue that which they cared about, that which has been lost. And in each of these stories, it ends with a joyful celebration. There's a change. There's a transformation. There's something shared beyond just the one rescued and the one rescuing. 
it is something that embraces the community as well. So here we have three parables with one lesson. The lost sheep begins by, by telling us that one of 99 has gone off, gone astray into the wilderness, and it's lost. It can't find its way back to, to pasture. It can't find its way back to water or to the herd. And so the shepherd willingly enters into the wilderness to bring back the one that is lost. He willingly carries its full weight, some 20 kilos or more, on his shoulders and lovingly hand carries the lost one back. Now, in this particular case, if we think about it, the shepherd must have been somewhat wealthy if he had 100 sheep. That was a pretty good reserve. And if you lost one of them, that would be significant, but it wouldn't be devastating. But yet, his heart is for the one that is lost. He's not simply looking at this from an economic standpoint. He is a good shepherd. And throughout the scripture, God has revealed himself as the good shepherd who cares for us, his sheep, his flock, to the point that he's willing to go into the wilderness to find us, to rescue us. And this, this story points to the incarnation, to Jesus Christ taking on flesh, becoming in human form to come and enter the brokenness of this world in order to rescue us. In the same way, the second story, the lost coin, it has a problem. It can't find itself. I have yet to have any of my money ever find itself all on its own. Maybe you have, um, but I haven't. Um, it has no ability to lift itself up from where it has fallen. And so a woman lovingly enters the darkness, bringing light to search the darkness for that which has immeasurable value to her. Now, if we look at this just on the surface without understanding something of the culture, we can miss just how important this coin was. It wasn't just that she had lost 10% of the money that she had. That would be bad. But in Middle Eastern culture of that day especially, when a woman became married, one of the things that they would receive from their father as part of their dowry, as part of their wedding gift, would be a headpiece of, of usually 10 coins that you would wear on the forehead that would indicate you were married. It was the modern-day equivalent, or the ancient equivalent of the modern-day wedding ring. So it makes a little more sense that she is not only searching diligently trying to find this coin, but when she finds it, she wants to rejoice and invite every person in the, in the community to come and celebrate with her. You see, it had incredible value to her because it represented a covenant relationship with her husband. God, in the same way, has come looking for us because we had run away. Israel, in particular, the bride of Yahweh, had run away. It had forgotten its covenant relationship. And so God sends his son to enter the darkness in order to bring back the one that he loves and restore the covenant relationship. You see, Jesus is using imagery here to show the heart of God the Father for Israel and for all of us. 
And that's the part that we really need to see. So let's look at this. We're going to pick up in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, 1 and 2, and then we're going to move on down into uh, the story of the father and the sons. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled or muttered, as we heard in the NIV, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The setting has two opposing groups that are gathered around Jesus. And and it's so amazing that you would have these two groups in such close proximity listening to the same message. It's really incredible because they really didn't like each other. The Pharisees would have constantly compared themselves um, to the tax collectors who were despised by all of society. We see this time and time again in Jesus' parable that he tells about the two men who are praying. He contrasts a Pharisee, a religious, self-righteous leader with a tax collector who's praying. We'll actually look at that in a few weeks, but he makes the contrast and because they're so different, at least on the surface. They appear to be so different. They wouldn't have liked each other. In fact, the Pharisees would have considered the tax collectors and the the sinners, which would include prostitutes, as the worst of the worst. And the tax collectors and the sinners would have looked at the Pharisees and only seeing people who are constantly judging them for everything that they do and have no heart for them. Sounds a lot like the way our own cultures divide itself. We can become self-righteous and judge the very people that Jesus Christ came to save. So here in the story, as we look at it, Jesus is coming to do something very specific. He wants to show, and in this parable especially, the heart of the Father. Now, in the Old Testament, um, God being called Father only occurs six times. It is there in the Scriptures, but it is not as prominent as some of God's other titles and names. And each of the names of God are designed to reveal to us who He is, what He is like. That is why Yahweh or Jehovah or the great I Am, I Am that I Am, reveals His self-sufficiency, that God is all in all of Himself, that He doesn't need anything. He is completely self-sufficient, but He is interested in us. He is indescribable. That's why his his name is somewhat hard for us to get our minds around. But here Jesus wants to very clearly reveal God as a shepherd, God as one who is searching, and God as a father. And in the New Testament, Jesus refers to God the Father over 200 times. He came to show us what the Father was like. And that's the point of this story. But before we begin there, we, we need to take maybe a, a side observation. When we look at this, Jesus is addressing this group, and he's heard the Pharisees, these self-righteous leaders, grumble. And I want to caution us of the spiritual danger of grumbling. When you and I begin to grumble, it should be a red flag that goes up saying there is something in us that's unsettled spiritually. 
It's dangerous. In fact, in Philippians, it says this in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. And I love that. I love that picture that he makes the connection there. Without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What he's saying is when we grumble, we lose our witness. We lose our influence. We no longer look like a child of the king, a child of God the Father. We no longer look like one who's connected through faith to Jesus Christ who came to seek and to save the lost. So we need to be careful to not grumble because it will affect how we live and how we look to others, whether or not we represent Jesus Christ well. Well, here in the, in the parable that we're going to read in just a moment the, uh, of the two sons and the father, Jesus has a main point. This is the backstory. Jesus reveals that God himself is a prodigal dad. Now, we usually use prodigal in um, reference to something that is negative, but it doesn't necessarily mean something that's negative. And in Tim Keller's great book, Prodigal God, he does an amazing job of helping us to see the extravagant generosity of our God. In fact, if you're later on and you want to find out more both about this story and just the nature and heart of God as a father, I recommend that you read that book. We have it at the resource table back there. They also have it at Prague Christian Library, um, or you can, you can find it online. It's an excellent, excellent resource. Jesus wants to show both the sinners that are gathered and the self-righteous that are gathered around him an accurate view of God the Father. Prodigal means wasteful or extravagant or giving profusely or to lavish gifts or loves or resources on another. And that is exactly what the Father does. In fact, Jesus' heart that he reveals in trying to point to the Father is reflected in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, where it says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He wants you to know him, not just as a God who is in control, not just as a judge, but intimately and personally as Father. Because everything that God has for us and the heart with which he truly loves us is wrapped up in that title, Father. Now for us, depending upon the experience that we have with our human fathers, the, the title father or dad may be a very good thing or it may be a difficult title. Because oftentimes as human fathers or dads, we fall short. I know personally with, with my four children how many times I've fallen short of being a dad that represents the extravagant generosity and love of our Heavenly Father. Whatever your experience is with your earthly father, Jesus wants you to know what God the Father 
is really like and how he loves you. And that is the main point that we have here in this story. Let's look at it. Beginning in verse 11, Luke chapter 15. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered or wasted his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But... But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring a fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. The story is filled with details that are designed to show us what God the Father is really like, as well as point out some of the failures in our own attempts to rescue ourselves. For one, Bible, the Bible says that while the runaway was still a long way off, his father saw him. What a great moment that is. Because it refers not just to the physical distance, it is even more referring to the spiritual distance. The runaway had tried to take things into his own hands. He had in essence told his father by demanding his inheritance, what he was saying was, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because within that culture, that's the only way that you would have received your inheritance. It wasn't something that was put in a trust necessarily and provided to them early. It occurred at the death of the father. And for that to happen, there had to be a great deal uh, of backstory of things that went along with it. We read in the narrative just a few words where it said the father had to divide up his property, which means he had to sell it. He had to have an auction or a sale with his property there that all the community knew about. And everyone would have been whispering about how this son had humiliated the father and was demanding his inheritance, who was saying, in essence, Dad, I wish you were dead because I want what is coming to me. I want control of my own life. I don't want to wait for your provision. 
I don't want to live underneath your rules and, uh, and on your reputation. I want it for myself. Between us and God, we have a similar problem. We want control of our life. We want to do things our way rather than God's way. We want to, rather than wait patiently on God's provision and timing, we want it now. We're all runaways. Every single one of us have run away from God in one way or another. But here in this passage, the Father is is pointing to something deeper. Even the imagery, even the words that Jesus uses when he says, far off, are a reflection that come out of the scripture in Jeremiah 31.3. The Lord appeared to him from far away and said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my steadfastness to you. You see, even though we've run away and we've become unfaithful, We've rebelled against God. God is faithful towards us, and he is seeking us, you and I. And here's the good news, the great news. It doesn't matter how far you've run away. You can't run past the goodness of God and his grace. You can choose to never turn around and reject his love but you can't outrun it because the moment that we turn, the moment that we respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and say, God, I'm broken, he's right there. And what we discover in this beautiful parable is he's not just there, he's already running towards us. That's the God that we have. It's amazing. So what happens here is he's... Uh, a long ways off, he's, he's beginning to walk back towards his, his homeland, and the father sees him first. His father saw him and was moved with compassion because day after day, the father watched for his son. Night after night, he waited for his return. Nothing deterred him, not the weather, not the jeers, not the jokes of the community and the skeptics, not the doubting looks of his friends or perhaps the complaints of his older son. He knew his son would return, and then it happened. One day, perhaps late in the afternoon, as the sun was beating down and sweat covered his face, he saw a figure slowly come over the rise and begin to walk hesitantly toward him. And throwing all his dignity aside, he ran to meet his son, a picture of God the Father running towards us. Then it says, the father embraced him. And it's interesting, when we, when we look at this in the original language of the scripture, the word um, that he uses here for embraced him, almost every other time that it is used in the New Testament, it means for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us. It's used in the book of Acts time and time again uh, about receiving the Holy Spirit. And I believe that is significant because when we look at the story and we see what happens, we see being lived out the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life of of one who is repentant. You see, the prodigal has a plan. He's coming back not to be a son, but to earn his way back into the favor of his father. 
but he encounters the embrace of the Father when the Holy Spirit comes upon him and it changes his plan. He realizes he's not going to be able to do it. Instead, he receives the grace of God, the grace of the Father, and he is changed. He's transformed. He sees the Father who was an honorable man with a great reputation humbling himself before everyone else. You see, in that day, in that culture, for a father to run meant he had to lift up his robes and tuck them into his belt. And that alone was undignified for an older man to do. But his love compelled him to run after his son. Just as we see in the scripture how Jesus humbled himself, he left his throne in heaven and took upon human form in order to run to us to provide us with salvation. That's what we read about in Philippians. He humbled himself. You see, this is a picture of God's heart for you and I. The links that he will go in order to bring us back to him. Everyone in the community knew that the son had shamed the father. He had to sell his property to give his inheritance to the son. The villagers would have been at the auction. They knew why the father had sold his livestock and off part of it, sold off part of his land. They also knew because news, bad news travels faster than good news. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It does. Just turn on the news and watch any channel. Doesn't matter. Bad news travels faster. Good news takes a few days, few weeks, few months to catch up. But bad news gets there. So everyone in the village would have known that the runaway had lost everything. The news would have gotten back. And here's this father who has a rebellious runaway child who's disgraced himself even further by being unsuccessful running to meet him and embracing him and kissing him. The father chose to be undignified and took the shame on himself because he so loved his child. And then look at the acceptance. Look at what God the Father gives to us as represented in what the Father gave to the runaway. There are five signs of the Father's welcome here in this passage. First of all, the kiss. It says that he, he fell on his neck and he smothered him with kisses. It wasn't just a friendly kiss on the cheek. It was kissing him all over, all over his head. The kiss is a sign of forgiveness, and I find it incredibly beautiful in the contrast that Judas chose to betray Jesus Christ with a kiss, but God our Father chooses to welcome you and I with a kiss of forgiveness. That's the heart of our God. That's how much He loves you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how long you've been away, if you will turn. He will give you the kisses of forgiveness. Secondly, he gets the best robe, a sign of honor. The robe ultimately is a picture for us spiritually of being clothed in Jesus Christ's righteousness. You see, when we come to Christ, he doesn't just clean us up. He makes us look like Jesus. 
so that in the eyes of the Father, he doesn't see all of the sin and failure that you and I have done. That has been taken and nailed to a cross. The record of its debt is forgotten. Instead, he sees you and I clothed in the righteousness, the robe of Jesus Christ. And so the Father wraps the runaway in a robe of honor. But it gets better. He not only gives him a robe of honor, he puts a ring on his finger, and it's a sign of authority. Most likely, this ring would have contained the seal of the family name. It was a symbol that indicated that the runaway belonged to the father's family and had authority over all the father had entrusted to him. Just as you and I have been given authority, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are praying in his authority. He has given us that privilege so that we can come right to the throne of the Father without hesitation, without fear, through Jesus Christ, through his signet ring, and pray and plead before the Father to do his work and do his will. He welcomes him with a ring. Then he gives them the sandals, the shoes, which is a sign of freedom. The runaway had lost everything, especially the freedom he was searching for to begin with. This is the amazing thing about our God. We think that if we can do things on our own without any, hesit- without any control or oversight, we're really free. And that's when we discover that in truth, when we run away from God is when we are the most imprisoned Because sin is a ruthless master that will enslave you and I every single time. The only way to have freedom is to entrust all that we are to the one who loves us the most, God himself. And he promises then to give us the freedom that our hearts truly long for, a freedom and peace of becoming all he created us to be through his work and the power of his word. And then finally, the fifth sign is a feast, a sign of a joyful welcome. God wants you and I to be at ease, to be able to celebrate who we are. When we come together and we sing, it is a celebration. When we worship together, it is designed to reflect the love in our heart over what God has done and who he is. And therefore, it is important for us to frequently celebrate what God has done, to worship him and enjoy his presence and his pleasure because our God was willing to go to incredible lengths to rescue us. Well, that's the prodigal father. We've already looked to a degree at the runaway and said that all of us rebel against God. But let's look at what happened to him briefly. We're going to go a little long, but it's okay because Leslie told me earlier that I had an extra hour today, right? Isn't that what? Yeah, I know that's not at all what she said, but that's how I reinterpreted it. And I'm going to go with it. Don't worry, I won't go that long because then you would blame Leslie and she does not deserve it, I promise. So... Quit. Thank you. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. The first step of repentance is recognition. 
It says in the passage, he came to himself. Now, this in self is not the repentance. He's simply coming to a recognition that something is wrong. And that's the first step for all of us. There comes a point in time where we have run so far from God that we recognize it's not working. Our plan has failed. Or even if we're successful, we recognize there's something missing. Even if we've had all kinds of seeming blessing and success, that emptiness wears on us to the point where eventually we come to ourselves. He recognizes that something is wrong, and he comes up with his plan to fix it. His first step is he tries to get a job because he thinks that the problem is, I just need more money. If I had more money, I would be happy because I, I spent all the money that I had to begin with, but if I can get more, things will be better. But that doesn't work. Secondly, he says, man, what I just need is I need a home and I need food. So I'm going to go back to my father's house because the servants there, at least they're able to eat. They have a place. It'll be better. And I can work my way back into the favor of the father. That's his plan. And that's what begins him on his course. But the second step is his confession. Because he does does come to a point where he simply says, I have sinned. And he humbles himself. He acknowledges his failure, but he no longer offers a plan to to work his way back to the Father. When we read in the narrative, it, it looks like the Father cut off his speech, and that may be, but I think it's actually more likely that he realized his plan wasn't gonna work because the Holy Spirit was bringing conviction into his heart and life. And so instead of saying, Let, treat me like one of your servants, he simply confesses, I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he places himself into the grace of the Father, which is exactly what we have to do. Oftentimes we think we have to clean up our life in order to come to God, and that is exactly what is standing in the way of you coming to God. We can't do it. We have to cast ourselves completely upon his grace and his goodness and confess we have sinned. Thirdly, we receive God's grace. We see this represented in the runaway putting on those gifts from the Father. He basically accepted a new identity as being readopted to the Father. And he put on the robe. And the ring, he received the kisses. He put the shoes of freedom on his face and he, on his feet and he sat down at the feast that the father had given him. And that was the fourth step. He began to celebrate God's acceptance. He began to, to live out the joy of his salvation. So here's some steps that we can put into practice because maybe you know the Lord and you, you have a personal relationship with him, but maybe where you are right now is you've discovered you've run away again in an area of your life, or maybe you've never come to know him. There's some steps I want to give you as an encouragement. Number one, don't sin too soon. This was his first mistake. Believe in God enough to wait for his timing. I find in my own heart and life, this is an area that gets me in trouble time and time again is I sin too soon. Rather than truly believe God at his word and trust his character, I take things into my own hands 
And I say, no, God, I want what is mine, and I want it now. Be careful not to sin too soon. But then when you do run away, return to your last place of obedience. Go back to where you left God's side and humble yourself and say, Lord, forgive me. And then choose to trust God's plan and timing that it is better than our own. Well, what about the father's love for the older son? Can you hang with me for five more minutes? Give me five minutes. I'll I'll be quick. Okay, seven. You know when a preacher says five, he probably means ten. You do know that, right? It's not that we have trouble lying. We just are not very good at time. That's really what it means. All right, Luke 15. What about the older brother? 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells this part of the story about the big brother directly to address the judgment of the self-righteous Pharisees. And I like the term big brother because when we think about big brother, we automatically translate that into government, right? Because government is watching us because we're influenced by um, George Orwell's book, 1984. How many of you ever have read Orwell's book or you've seen the movie, okay, 1984? Well, I'm I'm gonna show you big brother really quickly. We've got a little video clip from that, from the film that will help us remember what big brother is like. So let's play the clip. 30 to 40 group, take your places, please. Right. Let's see which one of us can touch his toes. Right over from the hips, brothers and sisters, please. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Smith, 6079 Smith W. Yes, you. Bend lower. You're not trying. Watch me. There, brother. That's what I want. Anyone under 45 is perfectly capable of touching his toes. I'm 39 and I've had four children. We don't all have the privilege of fighting in the front line. Remember our boys on the Malabar front. Just think what they have to put up with. To me, that is the perfect picture of the Pharisees. It's a perfect picture of us as well. Because we have a tendency to be just like Big Brother, to constantly say, you're not trying. You're not doing it right. Let me show you how I can touch my toes. Because that's the only way I can do it. 
Um, so anyway, in case you didn't miss that, um, we want to judge others, and it's incredibly dangerous. It's not what we're called to do. We're not called to be a big brother who's watching to see when someone else fails. We are called to represent Jesus Christ. But we have a tendency as big brothers to see the speck in the eyes of others but are blind to our own. We have a tendency like the big brother to be envious of others who receive grace or recognition or opportunity or mercy. As big brothers, we're insecure ultimately in our assurance of the father's love and that was the problem that drove the older son. He didn't know how much God loved him. That was the problem of the Pharisees, and oftentimes it is our problem as well. You see, all the gifts that he gave to the younger son, he also gave to the big brother. He gave the robe. He gave the ring. He gave the sandals. He gave and was offering the feast. He just wasn't recognizing the father's love. We're the same way. Oftentimes, out of pain in our own heart, an area of insecurity, we will lash out and judge others and become a big brother. I've noticed this as I've been studying this the last couple of weeks. I've noticed how much of a big brother I am in all kinds of ways, like the way people get on and off of the metro. You know, why am I a judge over whether you're doing it right or not? I'm not, but I do it, and so do you. I know you do. I've seen it in your eyes when I, try, when I do it wrong on the, on the metro. We try to take God's place when we're a big brother. And so that's, that's the action steps I want to encourage us to take that I'll leave us with. Remember when we judge, we are attempting to take God's place. And when we recognize that we're being a judgmental big brother, we too need to stop and turn around. We need to give the hurt to God and ask him to heal the hole in our understanding of his love for us and his love for others. We need to rest in his love and acceptance and pray for God's heart to respond and deal with the other person and look for ways to bless them. That's what God invites us to do. God in his word reveals through Jesus through the parables, through the whole message of the scripture, how much he has lavished his love upon us. Not because we deserve it, but because he desires us. And so I would end with this verse from Ephesians chapter one. In him, which is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us extravagantly gave to us his prodigal love in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. My prayer for each of us this day is that we will know the Father's heart for us and allow it to transform us. If you have a spiritual need in your heart and your life, if you're not sure what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ 
after uh, our next song and the closing of our service, we'll have uh, intercessors over here to pray with you. You, they, you can ask questions. Um, you can, you're welcome to email me or Becky or one of the elders questions that you may have. We want you to know how much God the Father loves you and how much he wants to do in your heart and your life and what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Or maybe there's just an area you're struggling with. Maybe you're like me and you've discovered that there's a lot of big brother in you and, and you need to give that to the Lord. We want to invite you to respond to him today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your, your word. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you teach us through your sinless life, through your sacrifice, or through your teaching. And Lord, would you help it to be not just a story that we hear, but a reality that we live. Help us to understand your deep, deep love and to live in the midst of its flow. Lord, would you speak to each and every heart and life that's here today? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us to celebrate that deep, deep love of Jesus.